0: Chapter 18 of Survivors' Tales of Famous Crimes. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jules Harlock, Mississauga, Ontario, Canada. Survivor's Tales of Famous Crimes, edited by Walter Wood, Chapter 18, The Vauxhall Train Tragedy. What was described as one of the most cold-blooded murders in the history of railway traveling was committed on Thursday, January 17, 1901, on the London and Southwestern Railway in the London District. A gentleman farmer named Mr. William Pearson of Winchester was shot dead in a third-class compartment by a man named George H. Parker, 23 years of age, who had been in the Royal Marine Artillery. At the same time, Parker tried to murder another passenger in the compartment, Mrs. Rhoda King of Southampton. The crime was remarkable because of the coolness and deliberation of the murderer and the practical impossibility of his escape from detection and capture. Parker, after trial and conviction, was hanged at Wandsworth Prison on March 19, 1901. This is the narrative of the crime by head ticket collector S. Rose. I was on duty at Vauxhall station when the Southampton train came in at 1.20 and was collecting tickets from the train when I was startled by hearing a lot of shouting and seeing a man rushing at a great speed towards the exit gate, where he dashed past the ticket collector who was stationed there and rushed down the staircase leading to the street, Vauxhall being an elevated station alterations have been made at the station since then and it would not be so easy now to get away as this man did for the time being i saw the man dash to the barrier and jump down the stairs a porter tearing after him and i heard the shouting and commotion but for some moments i did not know the cause of all the trouble then i noticed a terribly excited lady who was on the platform with blood running down her face. She had left a third-class compartment, the door of which was open, and was pointing towards the barrier. At first she could not speak, but soon she managed to cry out, That man has shot a man in the train. I joined the lady and went to the open door of the compartment. It was a third-class lavatory compartment and looked in and there in the corner i saw a gentleman sitting who seemed to be asleep i entered the compartment and looked closely at him and saw that blood was running down his cheek that was all and it did not seem very terrible but when i caught hold of him i found that he was dead other railway officials came up and i assisted in removing the dead man out of the carriage and into a waiting room where a doctor who had been hurriedly summoned examined him and found that he had been killed by being shot through the head, the bullet having entered the eye. The lady who had joined us was still laboring under intense excitement, and she told us in broken sentences that the man who had run away had shot the gentleman in the corner just before Nine Elms was reached. He threatened to shoot me also, she added, but I begged them for the sake of my husband and children to spare my life. The man said, give me a shilling then and don't say a word till I got away. This, the poor woman said, she promised to do. But of course, as soon as she saw the murderer bolting, she made a great effort to pull herself together and raise the alarm. I thought then, and I think still, that this lady, who proved to be Mrs. King of Southampton, showed great presence of mind and courage, for we soon learned that the murderer had fired at her also and tried to kill her. The bullet had entered her face, and she had narrowly escaped a fatal injury. She was removed as quickly as possible to St. Thomas's Hospital. This was all that happened on the platform from which, after considerable delay, the train proceeded to Waterloo. Information was at once sent to headquarters, and the principal official came to Vauxhall, and the railway police took charge of the affair. There was now an opportunity to learn what had happened to the runaway. We soon found that after dashing down the staircase, taking three steps at a time, and reaching the bottom he rushed into the road and made towards old vauxhall bridge he was closely followed by a porter named brewer who was a champion runner he is now in canada but the murderer went so swiftly that even brewer could not get up with him other railway officials and police outside the station amongst them a policeman who was on point duty at vauxhall cross joined in the chase, and there was a tremendous hue and cry. The murderer tore along towards the old bridge, and I believe that he would have escaped altogether for the time had it not been, happened that the road was up and the bridge was under repair. The collector at the barrier had not had a chance of doing anything. The murderer had just thrust the ticket into his hand and bolted he was too flabbergasted to try and stop him and as for myself i could do nothing because i was about eighty yards away i did the best i could with the things that came under my own particular notice just then especially so far as the look of the compartment went and of course i paid special attention to the tickets which had been used for the journey it was in connection with these that my evidence was chiefly of value at the preliminary inquiries and subsequent trial at the Central Criminal Court. When the murderer found that there was no chance of escape by way of the old Vauxhall Bridge, and that if he held on in that direction he was sure to be overtaken and caught, he doubled and made a dash for the Vauxhall Gas Works. He rushed into them at such a breakneck rate that he almost knocked the doorkeeper down. He ran into the yard and crossed a small bridge which ran over a little creek, a large and excited crowd being now at his heels. When he got into the yard, he must have seen that he was fairly trapped, and he made for anything that was likely to give him shelter and a chance of escape. After dodging about the yard, the man suddenly dived into a tunnel which led to one of the retort houses and As soon as he got into it, policemen and other pursuers were at the mouth of the tunnel and were calling upon him to come out and give himself up. He refused to do anything of a sort, and steps were taken to make his capture certain. It was seen that the murderer had hidden himself in a a coke truck and was in the tunnel and while a watch was kept on all points so as to be ready to seize him if he showed himself the engineer who was in charge of the gas works ordered the gates which led into the wandsworth road to be closed this was done as, and as both entrances to the gas works were now shut there was no chance of the murderer getting away This part of the chase proved uncommonly exciting because it was known that the runaway was a fine, powerful fellow and there was every reason to suppose that he would offer a desperate resistance, though Mrs. King had explained that the revolver with which the murder had been committed had been thrown out of the train and she believed it had fallen on the line. The tunnel was a dark place, and while a watch was kept on it, lanterns were obtained and preparations made to enter the tunnel and either seize the man or drive him out. Several policemen by this time were engaged in the operations and having posted themselves at the tunnel mouth. They called on the murderer to come out. It was not necessary to call for long because the tunnel was very hot and the man could not remain in it. So he left his hiding place in the coke truck and came to the tunnel entrance where he was instantly seized but he made no attempt to struggle he practically gave himself up to a constable saying it's all right i'll come quietly he was handcuffed and taken to larkhall police station and kept there he was never taken back to vauxhall station it was very soon proved that the captured man's name was parker and that he had been in the royal marine artillery but had been discharged for theft at the very time of his arrest for murder he was wanted by the police for a theft at the lyceum theatre in london he was quite a young man and one of the finest-looking fellows you could meet in a day's walk he was certainly so far as looks went The last man in the world you would expect to turn murderer, though you could see at once that he did not know the meaning of fear. Throughout the long proceedings at the inquest and the police court, he had never turned a hair. He was quite cheerful and cool, although he must have known that he had not the slightest chance of escaping the capital penalty. At a very early stage, Parker confessed that he had committed the murder though he did not quite know why he had done it as the victim was a complete stranger to him and he had never before set eyes on him but as a matter of fact parker was desperately hard up and wanted money very badly and there is no doubt that he suddenly resolved to buy a revolver and try his luck with some passenger perhaps expecting to frighten someone into giving him what he wanted The case was as clear as possible right through, but, so that it should be easily understood, a fine large model was made of the carriage in which the murder had been committed, and this proved very helpful in showing just what had occurred. The model, which is now I fancy in the company's museum, was for some time at the Lambeth Mortuary, where there was also a model of the carriage in which Miss Camp was found murdered. It was about a fortnight before Mrs. King was able to leave the hospital and give evidence. Then an experience was related such as few women have had to undergo. Mrs. King got into the train at Southampton on her way to Battersea to see a relative. She was the only occupant of the compartment until Eastleigh was reached. Then Parker got in, and the two were alone as far as Winchester. At that station, Mr. Pearson entered the compartment and seated himself opposite to Mrs. King, facing the engine on the right-hand side of the carriage. As soon as he had settled down, Mr. Pearson began to read a newspaper, and having read for some time, he put the paper down on the seat and went to sleep a sleep from which he never woke the train travelled on and matters went as usual until surbiton was reached then parker entered the laboratory and there is no doubt that while there he made his preparations for the terrible crime which he soon afterwards committed he re-entered the compartment where the other two passengers were entirely unsuspicious for there does not seem to have been anything in the conduct of Parker to create alarm. Surbiton Station was left behind, and the train was speeding towards Vauxhall, a short run. Mrs. King was looking out of the window with her back to Parker, having previously moved her seat to face the engine. While looking out the window she heard a bang, which she likened to a pop-gun. Then there was another report, and she felt blood running down her face. Startled and terrified, she turned to Parker and cried, My God, what have you done? What did you do it for? At that time, she had not looked at Mr. Pearson and did not know that he had also been shot. I did it for the money, answered Parker. I want some money. Have you got any? Mrs. King replied that she had a little, and she produced her purse and took out a shilling, which she gave to Parker. Then, for the first time, she looked at Mr. Pearson and saw that he was still in his seat, as if sleeping, but that blood was running down his face from the eye and that he never moved. Parker now lost no time in completing his task. He straightway began to rifle the dead man's pockets and, having done that, he seated himself and counted out some gold, offering a sovereign to Mrs. King. He said, Is that of any use to you? Stretching out her hands, which were covered with blood, Mrs. King told the man that she did not want the money. Then it was that she implored him to spare her life for the sake of her family. Don't touch me, Parker exclaimed when he saw the reddened hands. Then he told her that he was sorry for what he had done, but he saw how terribly desperate his situation was and how speedily he must act if he meant to have the slightest chance of saving himself by escape. What should I do with the thing, he exclaimed, meaning the revolver which he had shot his fellow passengers. I've a good mind to put it in his hand, then they'll think he shot himself." Some rapid talk then followed between the murderer and the passenger who was in such dreadful peril still, and no one can wonder that she suggested that he should throw the revolver out the window. Parker quickly acted on this suggestion. He hurled the revolver out of the window, but even at the time like that Mrs. King was calm and brave enough to notice approximately the spot where it fell, and it was found at Nine Elms, near a shed which has now been removed. This having been done, Mrs. King suggested that the dead man's face should be covered, and Parker put a handkerchief or newspaper over it. Every second was now precious as the train was slowing down for the stop at Vauxhall. Parker made careful preparations for the bolt. He got to the door of the compartment, partly opened, and stood on the footboard, and as soon as number two platform was reached, he sprang off the footboard and ran down towards the barrier with a double-up ticket in his hand. He reckoned on getting clear of the station before an alarm could be raised, and no doubt He calculated, reasonably enough, that Mrs. King would be too much terrified and exhausted to be able to give warning, but she managed by the most tremendous effort to pull herself together and to act, as I have described, with the result that Parker was chased at once and run down. No wonder he declared that he was sorry he had not killed her as well as Mr. Pearson, as then he would have had a far better chance of escaping. When the case came on trial at the Central Criminal Court, there was not a shadow of doubt as to what the result would be. The only question being whether the prisoner was responsible or not for his actions. A plea of temporary insanity was put in on his behalf, but this did not influence the jury, who, after a short consultation, found parker guilty and mr justice Fillmore, who was the judge sentenced him to death remarking that he seemed to have wasted his life and warning him not to entertain the slightest hope that the sentence would not be carried out even then parker was just as cool and careless as he had been from the very start and left the dock quite cheerfully and buoyantly i do not think that this was mere bravado i believe that he was a young man of great natural courage and took his inevitable fate bravely it was certainly to his credit that soon after the murder he wrote to the widow and did his best to comfort her by expressing his sorrow for his act it was shown at the trial that parker was one of a family of eight that at an early age he had been sent to a reformatory that he had been dismissed by the Royal Military Artillery as a bad character, and that he had stolen considerable sums of money and squandered them in fast living. Parker himself declared that he bought the revolver with the intention of shooting himself and a young woman, the wife of a soldier with whom he was associated. She was living at uh, Portsmouth, and on the day before the murder, the two went to Southampton, where they spent the night. At Southampton, while she was in the public house bar, Parker bought the revolver. Then they traveled to Eastleigh. At that place, they separated, Parker saying that he was going to Birmingham. He entered the train from Southampton, and when Winchester had been left, one of the things that may have prompted him to commit the crime was that he had no money enough to pay the excess fare which would have been demanded on his ticket as a matter of fact he had helped himself to mr pearson's ticket and it was this doubled up which he had thrust in the hand of the collector at the barrier as he dashed down the staircase at vauxhall station the revolver which was found and proved to be the one that parker used was very small it was six-chambered and four of the chambers were still loaded two of the cartridges had been fired one of them killing mr pearson by entering his brain through the eye and the other entering mrs king's face in addition to being charged with the murder parker was charged with the attempted murder of mrs king but of course it was not necessary to proceed with that part of the case i was greatly interested all through the trial in the demeanour of the prisoner when he was sentenced to death he simply shrugged his left shoulder and looked round defiantly and he actually smiled at the warders who escorted him away i watched him at the time of the inquest and also at the trial and never saw a sign of fear in him i think that from the moment he was caught at the gas works and handcuffed he took everything as a matter of course he was quite alone throughout the whole trial no one seemed to trouble about him and he certainly did not appear to bother his head about anybody the young woman whose name was associated with his in the awful tragedy had of course to give evidence and Very miserable, she seemed to be, hiding in corners and crying, lonely and neglected, and I never saw Parker look her way or take the slightest notice of her. An interesting feature of the affair was that the trial took place at the same time as the trial of the young man, Bennett, for the Yarmouth Beach murder, the Lord Chief Justice presiding over that case in another court. I am a Hampshire man and, afterwards, discovered that my father, who lived only about eight miles from Mr. Pearson, had known him quite well, but I myself had never met the murdered man. Railway murders are so very rare that, when one is committed, it arouses intense interest, and this was so with the death of Mr. Pearson. There was unusual commotion, too in some quarters about the dangers of railway traveling, nervous people forgetting that almost unnumbered millions of passengers are carried without mishap. The crime took place 15 years ago, and even during that period, a great deal has been done to add to the safety of the public. For example, corridor coaches are now used for anything like a long journey. As for the murder itself, It could easily have happened anywhere, the only strange thing being that Parker stopped where he did and did not kill Mrs. King as well as Mr. Pearson. End of Chapter 18 The Vauxhall Train Tragedy